All right, let's let's um, let me look at my clock to see how I'm doing. All right, let's begin. Um, Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, with humility and eagerness to hear from you as we tackle this difficult uh, subject of Genesis one. How should we understand it in light of science? We pray that you would give us insight. You would help us to uh, understand your word, the beauty of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Please have a seat. All right. So um, we're going to talk about um, the, the class is divided um, into two. Uh, the, le- the, the, the series is divided into two classes. Um, this class um, and then two weeks from now after the retreat, July 30th, the second class, which is a little bit unfortunate because it would be preferable if they were stacked one on top of the other. Um, but actually, it might be good because the two classes are a little bit different. Um, the first class, I'm going to talk about the conflict between science and religion. And it's going to be a little bit on the philosophical side. If you see the hand that I gave you, there's very little scripture. And the scripture that I do give you is not from Genesis 1. Um, and so I'm going to talk about the, the philosophical perspective about this conflict or the relationship between science and religion, or science and Christianity specifically. And in the second class, we're going to talk about, we're going to go really in-depth. It's going to be more like an exegetical, interpretational class on Genesis 1. We're going to dive deep, look at the three proposals, and, um, and I'll tell you what my, what my view is. So some of you in this class might be waiting for Genesis, the Genesis 1 class. And then this philosophy portion will be a little bit dry and boring for you. Um, some of you are will be satisfied with this class, and you don't necessarily need me to spell it out in exegesis for Genesis one. Since we have a lot of people, why don't we bring the chairs in and and there's, can we create a whole section there? Yeah, let's scoot too. And 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 then David, can you direct bring a bunch of people with chairs? Oh, actually, people are moving, so yeah, just. Excellent, excellent. Ah, it is, obviously. (laughs) Very good. All right, so the, the first class is on the philosophy between science and religion. The second class is on exegesis of Genesis 1. Um, they go together. I hope you'll come to both classes, which means I'm walking you in for three weeks. <laughs> um, but please bear, bear with me, okay? So the first class may not be super interesting unless you're already interested in the subject. I'll try to make it as scintillating as possible. All right, so let's talk about science and religion, right? Science and Christianity. So the common view on the street, sort of the common intuitive uh, wisdom out there is that science has disproven Christianity, right? You hear this all the time, just said casually. It's also pushed by um, what are called, who are called new atheists. You might have read or heard of some of their books, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett. And there are two versions of science has defeated Christianity, right? So the hard version is scientism, which is basically that science has replaced religion. Um, The questions that religion was trying to answer but failed 
now science has provided those answers, right? And um, so that's called scientism. Um, and then there's a softer version. So the, the scientism, you know, new atheists are absolutely in that camp. But, you know, uh, most people aren't necessarily thinking so philosophically, or maybe they're thinking about this more intuitively, but a lot more people are in the soft version. The soft version is that the Bible, you know, when you look at the Bible, it's the product of this pre-scientific era. So there's a lot of myths about the ancient world, and therefore, when it comes to these sort of creation myths and other kinds of myths, the Bible is not reliable. And therefore, science discredits large portions of the Bible, right? That's sort of the soft version. Um, so let me, go f let me go through each of them. I'm going to spend a brief amount of time on the hard version, and then the rest of the time I'm going to spend on the soft version, because I think it relates to Genesis 1. So here's the hard version. What is scientism? Okay? So scientism is basically two propositions. All right? So bear with me. Listen. First, only science gives us true knowledge. Right? So only scientific data, only scientifically confirmable you know, lab-tested data is real knowledge. And the idea here is that religion was an attempt to explain nature through these myths. So do you guys, for example, know the Greek myth of Persephone? Right? So what happens in that myth, it's, a very, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredibly fascinating, fun story. Persephone is a goddess. She is the daughter of um, her mom, uh, Demeter. Demeter is the goddess of, uh, of um, plant life, agriculture, right? And uh, Persephone is this beautiful woman and Hades, you know, loves, falls in love with her, wants to bring her as his wife. So he abducts her and takes her down to Hades. And then um, Persephone is there against her will, but uh, she's hungry, so she eats some uh, pomegranates, right? And then, um, and then, you know, the story, the way it resolves is um, she was taken there against her will, you know, and so is she forced to stay there? But because she ate some of the pomegranates, there, a deal is hammered out so that she has to stay there 25% of the time of the year. She has to stay with Hades as, you know, as a, as a captive in Hades. But the rest of the time she could be with in the, in, the, in the overworld with her mom, Demeter, right? So during the time that Persephone is down in Hades, Demeter is in grief. She's sad. And guess what happens? Winter, right? So it's a story to explain the seasons, right? And so the idea is, oh, so you have these ancient peoples. They have no idea why are there four seasons. Why is there this one season where no plant life grows? Religion came in to explain, some, explain these things. So religion is basically just bad science. But now that, we, now that science has come, we don't re need religion anymore, right? So the, the myth of, of Persephone is fun. Maybe we could tell our children. But no one takes it seriously as an explanation for seasons. So religion is just superstition. It's just myths. It's stories like the tooth fairy, right? It, it just makes us feel good, but they have no actual credibility. The only real knowledge that's available to us is empirical, testable data, right? So that's tenet number one of scientism. Number two, our moral and religious questions are answered by science. So religion is trying to answer these big questions, um, but religion can't, right? Because it's just superstition. It's just these mythic, made-up stories. So questions like, where did we come from? We don't, need to re we don't need recourse to God anymore. We came from an evolutionary process, right? Or the, the Big Bang, or all of these uh, scientific explanations 
provide us a satisfying explanation of our origins. Um, what is the meaning of life? We don't need to look to religion, but we can look to psychology and so forth. So these are science replaces religion. So let me outline for you the problem with scientism, okay? And um, let me give you two, and they're related. Number one, and the first one is a little bit philosophical, so bear with me. The second one's more interesting. The first one is that scientism, if you think about it, is contradictory. It's self-defeating, right? Because scientism says the only true knowledge that's out there can, is only comes from science, right? Only scientific knowledge is true knowledge. Then by that principle, scientism itself is not true knowledge. Because scientism cannot be tested in a laboratory, right? It's not scientifically, it's not scientifically verifiable data. It itself is a philosophy. It's a, it's a theory about knowledge, right? Which is not based on science. So it just defeat, it collapses in on itself. If you're a little bit familiar with philosophy, um, logical positive, logical positivism, um, you'll know, you know, no serious philosopher holds to that. Um, it's just held up for derision in philosophy departments. So that's the first thing. It's contradictory. Second thing, um, here we're going to spend more time on this. It's a category mistake. So this is the thesis that I kind of want to make throughout the entire class which is that science and religion are doing different things. They're in different categories, right? So science studies um, natural phenomenon, what's going on in the natural world, the mechanisms and so forth. And religion is telling us about the supernatural world. Um, the word supra means above or beyond. So by, very by its very definition, religion is telling us things that science has no access to. Science is telling us about the natural world, but it has no access to the supernatural world because the supernatural world is not the natural world. It's above and beyond it, right? Um, in fact, science can't even tell us whether the supernatural world exists or not. There's no way for it to know. Um, so here's a fun story, right? In 1961, um, during the height of the space race, Russia sent a cosmonaut out into outer space. And when he returned... Um, Khrushchev, who was the, uh, the premier of the Soviet Union at the time, he kind of crowed, right, because he's sort of defending and arguing for atheism, right, the, the, the supremacy of the, the Soviet system. And he said, our cosmonaut went up to outer space and he didn't find God up there, right? God, we didn't see God up there. And C.S. Lewis wrote an essay in response, in response and C.S. Lewis is just such a logical beast, but this is what he says, right? He says, if there is a God, we wouldn't relate to God the way a, a person who lives on the first floor relates to a person on the second floor, right? It's not just a matter of different locations within the same sphere, same realm. He says we would relate to God the way Hamlet relates to Shakespeare, right? So how does, how does Hamlet go about, please join us, how does Hamlet go about um, verifying whether Shakespeare exists? Does he go up in the rafters of the stage? Does he go into the curtains looking for Shakespeare, right? Shakespeare, are you there? He would never find Shakespeare, and that's not how you go about finding Shakespeare, right? The only way Hamlet can know Shakespeare is if Shakespeare reveals himself to Hamlet, right? And even better still, if Shakespeare writes himself into the story, into the play. We'll get back to that in the second class. So the idea that modern science has defeated Christianity is a confused statement. 
it's a it's a massive category mistake, right? Because it's confused, and and I would say this: the confusion about science and religion is on both sides. So you have a lot of atheists who say um, science is superior to Christianity, or um, I'm sorry, science is right. Okay? So they say science is right, and therefore Christianity is false. And then you have a lot of Christ, uh, Christians, well-meaning Christians, who say, um, "Christian, I know Christianity is true, therefore science is false, right? But it's a false conflict. It's a phony war because they're doing two different things. And so let me provide you an alternate way to think about things, which is um, this idea of two books. So the earliest Christian theologians, right? So this is not like a conception that came about as a result of the scientific revolution or this conflict between science and religion, but the earliest Christians from antiquity. Because the ancients, it's a huge misconception that the ancients had no idea of science. Obviously, they didn't understand modern science, you know, from the scientific revolution and the scientific method, okay? But they understood this concept that you can study nature, right? That you can, that nature has its own mechanics and so forth. So they came, they, they proposed this idea of two books of God. God has two books. Science is God's books, God's book in nature, and the Bible is God's book of theology. Right, so you have scripture. Uh, let me let me write this down. There's two books. So you have nature, and you have scripture. Now, both books are true. <laughs> both books are valid. Both books are real, and both books are non-contradictory because they're both from God. Right, um, they're both telling us about reality, but they're answering different questions. They're asking and answering different questions, and so for you for, uh, to say, you know, when I read the book of nature, it's amazing. I'm discovering all these things. Therefore, scripture must be false. It's just a, a massive category mistake. It's the same thing as a Russian cosmonaut going up into outer space and saying, "I don't see God up here. Ergo, there is no God." Um, any questions on the hard version? All right, let's press forward. So the soft version, right? So the soft version um, of this conflict between science and religion is that the Bible reflects a pre-scientific understanding of the world. You know, the Bible is the product of how ancient peoples thought. Um, and obviously, ancient peoples they didn't have the benefit of the scientific revolution, and therefore, they're going to be in error about um, how the world works, and specifically how the world was created, right? So here we're going to get to Genesis 1. So, the plain reading of Genesis 1, and what do I mean by plain reading? Um, plain reading, I mean a straightforward reading, um, the obvious reading, um, in which you don't have to do like second level of analysis, right? So just a plain, straightforward reading of Genesis 1 says what? God created the world in six days. Um, in a space of six days, which directly contradicts modern science. Modern science tells us the universe is 14 billion years old. It tells us that the Earth is 4.5 billion years, okay? Um, and that life evolved on Earth over billions and billions of years, not six days. Um, but if you read Genesis 1, um, 
and you take the six days um, as it is in a straightforward way, then the, the, the age of the universe is on a time scale of several thousand years. Um, it depends on how you did the analysis. Um, the famous analysis uh, done by Bishop Usher is that he looked at the genealogies in the Bible and then he calculated an average gap, uh, average age between um, each generation and he calculated um, that the Bible is telling us the world is 6,000 years old. Um, other theologians have looked at the genealogies and said, um, the genealogies, there are gaps, right? So it doesn't, because they're, they're numerically, uh, you know, perfectly symmetrical. So there are gaps, right? So there could be several people, uh, several fathers and sons between two names. Even if you allow for that, it's not going to be billions. You're still going to get maybe 100,000 years, right? So the Bible is telling us that humanity is only as old as maybe 100,000 if you take the genealogy in a straightforward way, it's about 6,000 years. Um, and since humanity was created on the sixth day, that means the entire universe is no more than 100,000 years old. Right? So that's, it's what's called young earth, young earth view. That is in direct contradiction to science. Um, Genesis 1 and modern science cannot both be true. So that's the conflict, right? Um, so here's my response to that. My response to that is, um, if that is a major stumbling block, you should know that there are different readings of Genesis 1 that Christians have always held. It has never been the case that Christians have always believed a single view. Um, and so there are, broadly speaking, three proposals for reading Genesis 1. So we're going to get into this much more in depth the second class, but let me just review it. Let me just uh, outline it for you today. Number one, sort of the classic traditional view, is the literal six-day view. The word literal, I really dislike the word literal, um, because uh, as you'll see, the third view, in my opinion, well, it even has the word literal in there as well. Literal just means having to do with words, um, but this is the definition of literal. Literal just means when you take words at face value in a straightforward way without recourse to figurative or symbolic meaning. Right, so you just read you read the text, and you don't you're not looking for other ways to read it. You're just taking it in a straightforward way, right? So that's the literal view, the literal six day, twenty four hour day view. This is the plain reading, and that contradicts science. Okay, so this is this is this is the war, right? If you take this view, there's a second view called the day age view. The day age view um, is a recent innovation. Um, it just came about, you know, within a hundred years ago, and um, the day-age view um, basically says when you see the word "day" in the in the Genesis one, it's the Hebrew word "yom," and it doesn't necessarily mean "day" as in a natural twenty-four hour day. It could mean a super long time. So basically, "day" means age or epoch. So when the Bible says the first day God created you know, uh, let there be light, right, and separate the night from the day, he's, he's saying the first age, and then the second age, and the third age. So the Bible outlines six ages. Does that make sense? And we don't know how long an age is, and therefore, it actually has compatibility or agreement with science. If you read the day-age arguments, um, they go to great length to describe how the latest findings from cosmology or, and so forth um, map to 
the, uh, to the Genesis 1 account, right? Um, so let me tell you my view. Uh, the day-age view, I think, is very much mistaken and incorrect. Um, actually, it's fairly popular at sort of the lay Christian level. You'll, you'll see a lot of um, Christians uh, uh, like this view because it seems to like reduce the rub between science and Christianity. Um, but if you go to seminaries, nobody holds this view. Right? There are no theological scholars who hold this view. I would, I would say this in an almost blanket sense. No one. <laughs> um, it's, not, it, it's, not, it's not considered respectable. Um, but I will talk about it a little bit, but very little. The, the third view, so this is really interesting. It used to be the case that this view was the majority view in seminaries and in conservative Christian circles. But in the last 20 years, it has shifted to this view. Um, I remember when I went to seminary. When did I go to seminary? Like 15 years ago, right? I remember when I went to seminary and I was being taught the literary view. It was sort of like we were speaking about it in like hushed whispers, right? Um, because it was still considered a minority perspective. The uh, I just read a recent book uh, on this debate, and they had they they had um, five scholars talking about different views of Genesis. Four of them were the literary view, and one was a, 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 the literal six-day view, and they were all congratulating the literal six-day view guy for his courage in being printed in the book and you know speaking about it. Because it has shifted dramatically, right? So what is the literary view? The literary view, and I'll talk about it now, and so that's my view. That's my position. Um, the literary view is that the days of the week, right, the, the six-day or seven-day week, is a literary framework. It's a poetic framework. They're sort of like pegs, right? They're sort of like picture frames in which God is telling a theological story, but he's not telling us a scientific story, okay? So in that sense, Genesis 1 is about theology. It's not science. And therefore, the literary view has no beef in the fight. And I think it, it fits very well with the two books view that I'm trying to articulate, right? Um, it, it has no conflict or has no contradiction with modern science. Let me just say this before we move on. Good Christians can disagree, right? Um, you can hold one of these three views, and it's perfectly fine. There's nothing, in my opinion, super major at stake, right? This is not the gospel. This is not even close to the gospel. Um, it's not even a more, um, um, like, in my, in, in our, uh, I'll get to you, uh, in our denomination, the PCA, um, we, we're very conformist denomination, meaning everyone holds the same view on a lot of subjects, right? So on gender roles, there's no variety among the uh, ordained ministers, right? Everyone has the same view on various things on, and so forth. Um, but on the Genesis 1, I would say 50% is literal 6A view, 50% is literary view. Although, again, it's shifting constantly. The younger generation is literary view. So that's to say... Even though I'm going to present this case, feel free to sit there and say, I'm, I really hold to Little Six Day View. Um, that's perfectly legitimate. I have a lot of respect for the Little Six Day View. Um, I think there's a lot to commend it. And um, I would not be surprised at all if, uh, if uh, I go to be with Jesus and Jesus says, it was a Little Six Day View. <laughs> 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 yes, Lord. <laughs> so, 
Um, Mal, do you have a question? Uh, just so I understand on the literary view. The literary view. Is that saying it's that something called literary kind of poetry? Kind of, so it, 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 I it's know saying, it's saying this didn't really happen. But no, 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 no. It. no. So that's a bad way to describe it. It's saying it actually happened, but it's it's happened. It's being described in a poetic way. Does okay. that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Um, like you can use poetry to talk about real events, but then you have to read poetry in the correct way. So that, so that the specific details aren't like historical narrative. Yeah. Going back to the two books view, um, is there a reason God didn't give us a book for nature? <laughs> um, so I think that, I'll get into it a little bit more, right? But the book of nature, I guess it would be a fantastically, massively huge book, right? Um, <laughs> um, also, I think... Um, when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, what did he say, right? He says, you know, be fruitful, have dominion, um, fill the earth. So he's telling us, right, he made us in his image. He says, now I created this garden. Now you go do the rest to the whole earth, right? Do the same thing. You're my child, right? I always tell Judah and Noah. It's a little bit kind of like brainwashing. But I'm like, <laughs> Judah, Noah, you're my son. Like, yes. You look like me. You're my son. So you have to, what does the son do? And they're not, they don't know, so I always tell them. The son imitates the father. The son follows the father. They're like, okay. They're like, what does the father do? And then they're like, read books? Yes. <laughs> you will also love books. Right? So kind of like that, right? We are our father's children. We are made in his image. He's a brilliant, creative um, uh, 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 being who makes things and discovers things and discovers is maybe not the wrong word for God, but like makes things and and um, and so then God says, "Go and do, go, go and discover my world. Go find out about my world." But just like the Hamlet Shakespeare analogy, we can't discover God because he's in the supernatural realm, but we have no access to him. So he needs to reveal himself. Does that address your answer? Or? <laughs> I think you had me at the it'd be a massive book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, scripture already is a massive book. Yeah. So if they were actually like accurate, like if there were like treaties on like um, on uh, dinosaurs and uh, trilobites, uh, yeah. it would put us even more to sleep. <laughs> Only some of us would be interested, but the rest of us would be asleep. <laughs> yes. How do you respond to attempts to map the scientific? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to address all of that, but basically, there's a there there's a strong um, bias or strong instinct to merge these two books. Does that make sense? So there's constantly a desire to make them compatible, right? So that view is called compatibilists. Compatibilists want to constantly show conformity and agreement, concord between scripture and scientific discoveries out there. And I, and I want to try to argue that that's a futile attempt. They're answering different questions. It's a category mistake. And, and in the end, you actually 
denigrate and diminish scripture because you're trying to make scripture fit into like these there's, so there's all kinds of wild exotic theories for example like um, in the outer as you go further out time is different so the speed of light is different that's how it could be a hun- the universe could be a hundred thousand years so there's all kinds of wild exotic theories that I think is unhelpful so what I want to say is you scientists you go do your thing don't feel fat un- uh, chained or bound and then theologians we do our thing and then together we're doing the same thing in the sense that we're both studying God we're both trying to understand his mind um, let me go on so uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about the literary view, but today I want to just lay down some groundwork and give you some paradigms. I want to talk about two things that will hopefully help you to understand what I'm trying to say. So number one is Genesis one giving us science. That is the assumption behind the first two views. Genesis one is essentially giving us science, right? Um, day A just trying to say, oh, it actually fits. And then the literal six-day view is saying it doesn't fit, therefore science is a fraud, or, or uh, the sciences that tell us the earth is old is a fraud. Let me also argue, scientism is in this camp. <laughs> so one of the premises that um, a lot of these neo-atheists say is, aha, Genesis 1 contradicts, therefore the whole Bible is, is a phony. Um, but I want to propose that we're asking the wrong questions. That Genesis 1 is not about material origins of the universe. Right? What do I mean by material origins? Meaning the study of cosmology. Right? I mean, what is cosmology? Cosmology is how did the universe begin? How did it get, get the shape that it does? How do stars form? Things like that. Um, and you know, the Big Bang Theory is part of the cosmology. So Genesis 1 is not cosmology. It is not talking about the material origins of the universe. It's talking about the purpose and meaning of God in creating the world. So the question it's asking is, what is creation for? Why? Right? Not, it is not asking, how did it come about? It is asking why questions, not what questions. Does that make sense? Um, so let me press forward. Think about the original context of, the context of the original audience. So think about when the Bible was written, or, or, or when Genesis was written. Moses wrote Genesis, Moses wrote the Pentateuch after the Exodus. So the people of God are rescued out of Egypt, and they're brought to Mount Sinai, and um, God is revealing himself to his people, and the Hebrew people, the ancient Hebrews, have a ton of questions, right? Their questions are, why did, why are the people of God, why were we in slavery in the first place? How did we end up there? What is God's purpose in rescuing us? What does God want from us? What is the meaning of life? These are the questions that any person would ask, right? These are the most important questions. They were not asking, what are the material origins of the universe? Is the Big Bang Theory correct? Or, like, is there some other explanation? Like, can you tell us about star formation and, you know, the elemental theory of nature? They're not asking those questions, right? They're asking theological questions about meaning and purpose. So let me give you an illustration. Imagine that um, there's a play. And you're, you're stuck in traffic, so you come late, and you arrive in the middle of the play, middle of the second act, and you slip into your seat next to your friend. Now, you're watching this play, and you have no idea what's going on. So you, you lean over to your friend, and you whisper to him, what happened in the beginning? 
right? And your friend leans over to you and looks very gravely and says, well, six months ago, they started building the stage. These are the materials of the stage, right? <laughs> uh, um, this is wood paneling, you know, the materials of the curtain. Then they hired the director. Then they um, started casting for the script. They got a production manager. They started hiring all And then you're saying, what are you talking about? I'm not asking that question. I'm asking about the story. What happened in the beginning of the story, right? So science is like your friend, your weirdo friend, right? Um, who is interested in the composite materials of the stage. Those are interesting questions too, but they are secondary questions, you see? The scientist is going up on the stage and saying, well, this is really interesting. Like, how did you make this stage? And like, what's the process of like getting the script? And what's the economics behind, you know, paying all of your actors? And, 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 the, and uh, the, the questions that the Bible is focused on is the story itself, the meaning and the purpose of the actual narrative. So the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt, they want to know, what did, why did God create the world? What are we for? What is our identity? You know, what is our purpose? Um, and therefore, since Genesis 1 is not answering scientific questions, it therefore cannot be in conflict with science. Because it's talking about the meaning and purpose of human existence, and science, by the way, can't even answer those questions. Right? Science can't tell us. Science is only descriptive. It is never proscriptive. Right? Science can only tell us the way things are. It can never tell us the way things ought to be. Right? Science, um, furthermore, cannot tell us about who God is, because God, by his very nature, is not a creature bound by nature. You can't put God in a laboratory. God, God sits above all of creation. He's a supernatural being, right? Um, so, what was Genesis 1 instead teaching the ancient Hebrews? Um, let me just outline four very quickly. Genesis 1 was telling the ancient Hebrews, God existed from all of eternity, right? In the beginning, God. He is the center of reality. He is the source of all existence, right? They, they don't know who God is. So God is saying, I am, I am, et- I am eternal, have always existed. It's never like the case that uh, the material created world is eternal. No, it came into being because of my spoken word. Number two, only God is God. The natural world is a created thing. What do you see in Genesis 1? You see God speaking the natural world into being. It's deriving from God. The ancient Egyptians, as well as all ancient peoples, believed the natural world was divine. Mountains, rivers, um, creatures, animals... These were divine beings. These were deified. And what does Genesis 1 tell us? They are clearly not God. God made them, and he's ordering them, he's moving them around, he's structuring them. They are completely subordinate to him, right? Number three, as I was saying, God is ordering and governing the natural world. We'll look at this in the next class, but a lot of the language of Genesis 1 is dividing, ordering, um, um, organizing and so it's telling us that the natural world has no independent power from God right that um, you have to understand the ancient Hebrews and all ancient peoples the natural world was an incredibly frightening scary place right it seemed like the natural world itself had powers if you um, if you know a little bit about um, ancient religions um, they would assign deity to just things like the sea the sea was a deity. You know why? Because when you went out onto the sea, at any moment, seemingly arbitrarily, it would just 
become a tempest and you would drown and die. But what is Genesis 1 telling us? It's telling us you should not be afraid of nature. You should be afraid of God. He is the creator. Number four, God created the world good. Right? If you read Genesis 1, he created the world good and harmonious. It's not this um, terrible, churning, chaotic place. And therefore, if you read on Genesis 2 and 3, evil and suffering are subsequent invasions into God's good world. So the Hebrew people are asking, why, why is there suffering? Why is there pain and agony? And Genesis 1 through 3 tells us the answer, because of human rebellion. God never intended it to be that way. God designed the world good, but then evil was introduced because of sin. So death is not natural. Um, um, suffering is not natural. So these are the lessons Genesis 1 is communicating. And if you read Genesis, therefore, if you read Genesis 1 as science, at a minimum, you're reading it in a shallow way. And um, more seriously, you're missing out on the real drama of the story. So that's the first kind of point I want to make. And I want to make um, the, the point about primary and secondary causes. But is there any questions before we, we move on? Oh, I'm not doing so bad. Yes, John. Are you saying that the Pentateuch was written to the Hebrew people as a primary audience? Yeah, as the original primary audience. But the word of God is for God's people at all times. Um, so it's, it's for us as well. But the way we read it is we read it as like second in line. I guess I'm, I'm talking about people that came before the Exodus. Do those people know the story of the word of God? Um, yeah, so if you look at, for example, Adam, I mean, sorry, Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, they clearly, they didn't have scripture, obviously, but they clearly talk about the promise that God gave to them, right, to their family. Um, they're clearly carrying on the story through oral tradition. So the word of God was in an oral form through stories and through oral tradition, but it wasn't written down until Moses. Um, so how much of the oral tradition contain um, uh, uh, the, the, the Genesis 1, the, the, the creation of the world, how much of that was in the oral tradition? I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? I would assume that it was, but I guess it would have been. Yeah, even if it was. I'm sure Adam and Eve's children would have had the same questions. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Like those questions just yeah, so I'm sure Adam and Eve would have told their children, you know, Seth and so forth, um, Cain. This is what happened in the, in the garden, right? But at some point, it becomes attenuated and lost, I suppose. But even if it was maintained, like within the line of Seth, right, through Noah and so forth, through Abraham, it was maintained, um, the written word puts it down in a much more solid form, such that it's addressing the questions in a much more solid form. In a historical context, when do we believe Moses existed and wrote this? When? Yeah, 1,500 years before Christ, 2,500 years before Christ. <laughs> well, there's a big debate between the dates of the Exodus. Is it 1,300 or 1,600? It depends on um, how you look at the... Uh, so we, we believe it's less than 1,500 years ago Moses wrote this. 16. Uh, oh, so si less than 1,600. Yeah, 16 is the older date, yeah. That's a rough idea of when Moses existed. That's right, yeah. If, if uh, A big cheat sheet is Moses. So the 16 is a conservative view. So a uh, big cheat sheet is Moses 16, David is 1,000, and then Jesus is. Uh, any questions? So I got uh, asked a lot from the non-believer friends. Yeah. 
God created the world good. Yeah. And Satan was created by God. Yes. <laughs> so, in what sense is God responsible for Satan, right? So, that's a whole nother complicated issue. But the short answer is that um, God has ordained the fall, but he is not responsible for the fall. Some people think that's a semantic quibble. But basically, um, God, God is in control such that the fall did not happen outside of his control. Right, the introduction of evil and sin, but he didn't plot it. He didn't um, instigate it. He wasn't the driver of it. So we can talk about his passive will versus his active will, and it's we get into the weeds then. Any other questions? All right, let's press forward. So Genesis is about primary, not secondary causes. So I think this is really helpful. <laughs> Let me explain. What is a primary cause? A primary cause is the ultimate reason something happens. A secondary cause is our intermediate steps to that outcome. All right, so let me just graphically draw it, okay? So this could be the primary cause. This could be the secondary cause. And then this is the outcome. Does that make sense? Okay, so pool is a good example, all right? When you're playing pool, you have a cue stick, right? And you hit the, you hit your, you use your cue stick to hit a cue, uh, a pool ball, and then it finally results, hopefully, in another ball going inside of the, inside one of the pockets. You are the primary cause. The pool balls in the process of all the cascading heads are secondary causes. Does that make sense? Like, if you were to take a camera to the final outcome and just take a snapshot of the camera, you wouldn't see the primary cause. You'd only see the secondary cause, the, the other pool ball heading the final outcome, right? But if you zoom out, you see, oh, there's the primary cause. Does that make sense? Is that paradigm clear? All right. Now, um, the fact that there are secondary causes does not invalidate the primary cause, the existence of the primary cause. Is that, is that understandable? All right. Let's go, let's go into scripture a little bit. Okay. Now, the Bible often speaks of God's actions in such a direct way that it leaves out the secondary cause, but it is assumed. All right. So the way the Bible talks often is that the Bible elides secondary causes and it speaks of, of God being the primary cause or the ultimate cause, directly acting on the outcome. And it does not mention the secondary causes. Does that paradigm make sense? Okay. Um, and in a sense, in that way, it often speaks of God in anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphism is basically assigning something that isn't human, human features, right? So it often speaks of God's hands, right? And then God's hands does something. Now, God doesn't obviously have hands, but it's just saying that God's power is behind it. God is acting on something, right? In a very direct way. So let me give you an example. Psalm 139, 13. David, this is Psalm of David. He says, you formed me in my innermost parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, what is David saying? He is not saying that God directly formed him in the womb with his hands and knitted him. Does that make sense? David is not saying that, you know, God reached down into his mother's womb and formed David, you know, in his mother's womb. Um, it's, it's, it doesn't contradict 
secondary causes. What are secondary causes? Fetal development, <laughs> the natural process, right? Sperm and egg. I'm sorry if this is the first time you're hearing this. Sperm <laughs> and egg, right? You have, you have a fertilization and an embryo, and then you have the various fetal development stages, nine months, right? Now, that all happened to David, right? He's not saying it didn't happen. He's just eliding over it, and he's getting immediately to the first cause. God did it. God is behind it. In fact, think about this. In Psalm 139, if he paused and said, God created me through fetal development, and he talked about all the science, he would say, David, you are a boring poet, right? (laughs) Terrible poetry, right? So poetic language often talks about God as a direct actor on the action. And it's beautiful that way. And that's the truth we want to know. Do we want to know the fetal develop- science of fetal development in our creation? Some of us do. But most of us want to know, did God make me? You know? Is he, did, he, did, he, did he deliberately, purposefully, lovingly create me? That's what we want to know, right? So let's apply this logic to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, is Genesis 1 telling us how God did it? Is it telling us scientific information? Is it telling us all the secondary causes? That would be the least interesting thing for Genesis 1 to do. Um, A lot of people say, what about the dinosaurs? Yeah. What about the trilobites? (laughs) Right? I mean, yeah. It's it's all part of the secondary causes, all part of God's creative genius, but it's relatively unimportant to the story God is telling. God is going immediately to humanity. He's telling us about how what he's doing with us. So God is telling us about our relationship to him, um, about who he is, and he's skipping all the secondary causes. The secondary causes, therefore, can be evolution. Does that make sense? Let me press on. Therefore, Genesis 1 does not preclude what I would call mediated creation. Right? Mediated means... Um, other things in between what God is doing, right? So secondary causes can still be at play. They're just not made explicit in Scripture because that's uninteresting. So many people think if, if modern science offers explanations for material origins, then it excludes the existence of God. And that's just logically not true. So a lot of people say, Big Bang Theory, therefore no God. And your response would be, you're confusing primary and secondary causes, right? Big Bang Theory, sure... God could have mediated creation through the Big Bang Theory, right? Um, I am not qualified to speak on the Big Bang Theory, right? So uh, I'll leave it to you scientists. Uh, I don't know if anyone here is a cosmologist, probably not. Um, but I'll leave it to you to decide the merits of the case. But it has, it has no, it, has, it, it does not undermine God whatsoever. A lot of people say evolution, therefore no God. And I would say you're confusing primary and secondary causes, right? God can mediate his creation through evolution. Um, The position is called theistic evolution. We'll talk about that in the next class because that has relevance to Adam. Was Adam a special creation or was he a part of evolution? We'll talk about that. So I I have a view on that, right? Um, I guess I'll tell you right away. I I do. Th- uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure because you can never. Because again, scripture speaks in a com- compressed, poetic way. But 
scripture, I think, uh, uh, definitely suggests special creation. We'll talk about, could there be other explanations, right? And so I'll, I'll get into that later. All right. Um, so, in fact, let me say, it is very natural for God to create through mediated processes. In fact, that makes sense. It's a beautiful thing that God does that. So the scripture talks about God creating the starry host. But there could be a whole science of cosmology behind star formation and so forth, galaxy formation, that is true, that is part of God's creation. God created all living things, and it could be mediated through evolutionary biology. So, with that in mind, any questions? So basically, I opened the door to evolution, right? So you can you can peaceably hold to evolutionary biology as well as holding a very serious high view of Genesis 1, and they don't have to be at war or at odds with each other. We'll get into that much more second class, but any, any, any questions? So in theory, with knowing the Bible, therefore, like, who God is really, really well, make you a better scientist? Because you understand, like, how God works, or perhaps possibly how he would think? Yeah, I think on several levels, um, there's a lot of interesting scholarship that basically says Christianity laid the groundwork for the scientific revolution because Christianity believes in a God who creates in an orderly way. Creation is not chaotic. There's not magical forces. There's not um, competing deities all fighting within the natural world, but it's a very orderly world because God is an orderly being. Um, so a lot of people say it's not a mistake that the scientific revolution happened in, in a world that was inhabited by Christianity. Secondly... I would also say that if you're a Christian, it makes you, like, why should you study science, right? I think part of your motivation could be because you're studying your father's world. You're thinking his thoughts after him. And um, it also gives you integrity. It gives you endurance. Um, you can persevere through difficulty. Um, because the world is not this arbitrary, um, empty void where there's no meaning and purpose in life. Life is filled with purpose and meaning because your Heavenly Father made you and he left this huge banquet of, of discoveries you can make. And so that can, I think, give you a lot of motivation and help and assistance. I don't know if that helps you, but... <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, Sean. So, for example, if we discover his actual life on Mars, people, people that are <laughs> if we find aliens so if we find um, some kind of exobiology that's on a, a below intelligence level um, non-intelligent, non-sentient I think it would be completely compatible with everything I'm saying Right? for example um, there are deep sea creatures that humanity didn't know existed until like the last hundred years or so Right? there are creatures uh, bacterial uh, species that exist in these sea vents, right? Humanity didn't know about them, so we just discovered them. It's like, wow, it's like the surface of Mars almost, right? Does that, does that um, take away from the existence of God? I would say no, right? God placed them there for his own glory, for the whole workings of the ecology, but we just didn't know. So maybe God, maybe there's um, uh, microbiology in Mars, the moons of Neptune and so forth, or maybe in out in a, a st in the nearby star systems, there are planets, right? Exoplanets. Maybe there's like whole biological systems, perhaps. The second question: What about intelligent, sentient beings, right? Like 
people, um, uh, creatures that are intelligent like us? Oh, that's a whole other question. I don't know. That that would be much more challenging. I would have to think about that. Why would it be? If God created the universe, then he definitely created them. Uh, That's true. You can eventually get there, but it would be a little bit more traumatic work to get there. Because, well, I say this because 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 um, humanity is uh, made in God's image, but not not the animals, right? So, what what would that mean for these alien species? But anyways, well, you're just assuming they're animals, huh? So you're just assuming they're animals. No, no, I'm talking about uh, intelligent alien life. Right. Yeah. Which, oh, we would just assume they're animals. Intelligent. How do you know, do you know they're not you? Oh, right, right. <laughs> sure, sure, saying. yeah. So, those questions, uh, 99.99% chance we're not going to experience anything like that for, for, for reasons that are actually scientific. So, we don't have to worry about it. Any other questions? Yes. Science is telling us that we're definitely going to find one. That's what science is telling us. That's not, Smart actually. Life. Smart life? Yeah. It's, that's not true, actually. <laughs> Next question. Read the Fermi paradox. <laughs> Mel, read the fir- uh, look up Fermi paradox on Google. Fermi paradox. F-E-R-M-I. Yeah. Any, question, any other questions? All right, we ended on Fermi Paradox, so that's, that was fun. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we're grappling with Genesis 1. How should we read it? And um, we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight, but most of all, you would give us an assurance of faith, an assurance that you love us, um, that you created us, and that, um, that one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And... Um, and the process of discovering and understanding will never end. And so we uh, give you praise to that, and uh, we glory in that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thank you, class.